Life is hectic, so wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with Factor's chef-crafted and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. With over 35 options a week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan and veggie, and more, they've got a variety that fits your lifestyle. Factor has restaurant-quality meals ready to heat and eat in just two minutes. They also have various easy options for the entire day, from breakfast to midday bites, smoothies, and more. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is a nutritious and delicious experience, and it won't break the bank. You can customize your meals by choosing 6 to 18 per week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule deliveries anytime to fit your schedule. Factor meals are 100% hassle-free, giving you more time for what matters. Head to factormeals.com slash otherside50 and use the code otherside50 to get 50% off. That's code otherside50 at factormeals.com for 50% off your delicious, hassle-free meals. My story really starts from childhood. I was always a clairvoyant child to a point when it was scary. I knew things before they happened. I, I really just had the heart for animals and people couldn't see people suffering just was always always knew i had something special and metaphysical about me but it was so intense that i rebelled it so as i was growing up and the ego took over you know i was always a good person but i was very very materialistic i was very very the opposite of what i was supposed to be what i was meant to be and if that's from just being, you know, out there and a dating scene and, and just really being into money and into materialistic things. And I didn't really think anything about the soul journey, but I was simply focusing on my life journey. And that's how I grew up. So I was, I was rebelling it, though I knew that deep inside that realm existed. I just didn't want to do anything. I wanted nothing to do with it. So I was... 20, no, I was 33 when uh, the accident happened, but um, I came to America at age 26, and like I said, I chased the material. I had a few businesses. I was teaching martial arts for years. Uh, I was helping people, and, and again, don't get me wrong, I was, I was a decent human being. I never broke the law. I was a, a very decent human being, but when it comes to materialism, when it comes to the opposite of spirituality, that's where my mind and heart were at the time. So I was really into making money and being successful and being out there and just getting noticed and all that stuff. I remember that at um, age 33, it was October 14 of 2014, I was working as a correctional officer for the state of Illinois. And I work in a maximum security prison in Illinois. And for those of you who don't know, maximum security prisons are where the the worst of the worst are being housed. It's people that have a minimum sentence of 25 years and above. So it was, why am I saying this? Because just to describe you, the energies, the spiritual energies that I was observing in that place behind those walls were just something out of this world, but at the time, 
I didn't pay any attention to it. I was trying to block it off because I wanted to make money. Only had this job because I wanted to make good money and I wanted to have good benefits. And in the area that I lived back then, there wasn't really too much to do. So that was a really good job to have. So we were working crazy hours. Like we were so short staffed. And when you work for a maximum security prison that houses over 3,000 inmates, like you have to have the manpower to maintain that. So a lot of us were mandated to work overtime. And I'm talking about 14 hour shifts and I was working the night shift. I remember that I used to commute to work one hour each time. So each way, and there was just a bunch of cornfields and it was like middle of nowhere. So the road was really boring, you know, to do at the same time, every same thing every day. And I remember that during my um, working overtime, I couldn't sleep very well when I got back home because I was just like always thinking about the prison and the, and the scenes that I've seen there. And it's going from criminal all the way up to demonic as far as what's going on in, in such prison. Not to go into details, of course. So it was really, really bad energies that prevented me to sleep. But uh, so I was working at my business as a martial artist, going home, taking a shower, getting in my uniform and going to work at the prison, 14 hour shifts. So these were my, uh, these were my days. I remember that because I was, I was new, fairly, and I didn't have seniority. I was only there for two years. My days off were never the weekends, but there were Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And on your days off, they could not mandate you to work overtime. So you kind of have to just um, get done with your shift and go home. And I remember it was a Tuesday morning. And I'm like, I'm just going to go home and I'm going to relax and I'm going to see my kids. And it's going to be fun. Nobody's going to mandate me. And I was really excited. Tuesday morning arrived. And I get into my van. And it was around quarter to seven after I got done getting my stuff and leaving the prison. And I remember it was a sunny day. It was a nice day. And I didn't feel tired. Like most days I would feel very, very, very tired. Uh, but I didn't feel tired during this one. For some reason, I was very, very, like I had an adrenaline rush because I felt like I'm going to go and do something fun tonight. I don't know what, but it's going to be fun. And I got into my van and I'm going into this route uh, called Route 3, which is like an hour straight forward drive, cornfields on both sides, nothing. And you just drive back home. And I remember it was 7 a.m. Uh, and I'm driving on that Route 3, my uniform. And I'm doing 70 miles per hour because that was the speed limit. And I, I wasn't speeding because I was, you know, I was a correctional officer. I was in uniform. You have to obey the law always. But especially when you're in, in uniform, you can't even speed a little bit. You got to be, you got to do the speed limit. So I was doing the speed limit. And I don't know what happened, but in a split second, within a split second, I don't know if I dozed off, if I fell asleep. I don't know what happened, but it was a split second. And all of a sudden, I feel that my wheel just locked. I feel that my brakes locked. They were stuck. Nothing worked. Like it wasn't any hydraulic fluid in them. 
So here I am in my van, and then it started hydroplaning and spinning. And I remember that, that I didn't panic, but I just didn't understand what just happened. And I'm looking at the speed gauge at the time and hoping that the speed's going to go down so I can try to control the car. And instead, it was going up. So it was it went from 70 to 75, to 80 to 85. And I didn't understand what was going on. And then across from me, in the other, in the opposite lane, because it was, you know, it was a school week and it was 7 a.m. So people that lived there took their kids to school at that time. And I could remember through the windshield, I saw the car approach, approaching while I was spinning. And there was a lady there with two of her little kids in the back seat. And I remember telling myself, no matter what happens, no matter what you did, no matter if I fell asleep or not, it doesn't matter. You're not taking other lives with yours. So with everything I had, I was just uh, steering my wheel to the right as hard as I could. And then I was facing this concrete wall, a divider of some sort. And I'm looking at the speed gauge and it's 85 miles per hour. And I remember that as close, as closer as I got to this concrete wall, time slowed down dramatically. And I remember holding the wheel and just like people say that, you know, you see your whole life running in front of you. I just remember that I had the biggest smile on my face. Now, remember, I told you in the beginning, I was a martial artist. I was a martial arts instructor for decades. And I know my instinct. And I knew that if I'm about to hit something, I would cover up, I would brace, I would do something to try to save myself. And instead, in that moment, I'm going in there and I'm smiling. I'm smiling like I'm about to welcome a loved one at the airport that I haven't seen in years. I'm just at like a moment of anticipation, an unexplained anticipation. And I remember that between me and myself, I'm debating like, are you smiling? Because you, you didn't imagine you're going to just die like that, like on your way back from work in your uniform without saying goodbye to everybody or you smile, why? And I just didn't know why, but I was smiling and I, I wasn't afraid. I wasn't afraid at all. And then I heard the impact sound, the blast. It was the loudest explosion sound I've ever heard in my entire life. And I've heard some explosions before and nothing like that, nothing like that. It was like the loudest thunder. And then all I could remember was the airbag starting to deploy, but it was so slow. And it looked to me like it was just sheets hanging outside to dry. It was a beautiful white sheet. So it was just, you know, amazing effect. And then all I remember is opening my eyes upside down and note, I remember everything that happened from the second I left my shift, from the, from the moment I left the prison to the time I lost control over the car and the lady across from me that I had to avoid the impact. I remembered everything. So it's not like I was out and I didn't know what happened. I was upside down. I'm in my van and there are a lot of pictures of it online and, and the van was squashed like 
like a soda can. And the the body of the, the horn vehicle formed some sort of like fork like swords that were just just on me. And I'm underneath and I wake up and it's the absolute best feeling I've ever felt in my entire life. And I don't know about other people, but I don't think I'll do justice with trying to describe it and downgrade it into human terms, into this world's terms, because there's nothing that can even come close to compare to how you feel. But I will try. First, I remember that I was amazed with the fact that there was no sound. It was as if the sound was sucked out of this world completely. There was no sound at all. Of course, there's no pain, there's no smell, there's no sense of touch. There's absolutely nothing. And then I noticed that my thoughts are gone. You know, we, we always think, we constantly think, even at times that we are most relaxed. We can be somewhere vacationing in an isolated island and still enjoy ourselves and think about how much we're enjoying ourselves and think about how often we should do it. We always think. And in that moment, I didn't have any thoughts. I just existed. I didn't have any question marks. I knew everything. I felt protected. I felt blissful. I felt home. Now I'm seeing everything. I'm still in the car. The car was completely squashed and it, it almost like the, the driver's side, my side got the most impact. Like technically I was supposed to be decapitated pretty much. And I'm there figuring out like what's going on. I mean, I'm still stuck, but I'm like, it's the best feeling in the world. Like somebody's tickling you constantly. And there's nothing to worry about. And you just live a true definition of living. Living unconditionally. Living with no problems. Living with no nothing negative in your life. With no question marks, with no doubts. And I remember that I kind of figured out that I need to get out of this situation, even if I am, if I passed away and, and, and this is what it feels. And and I remember that I'm upside down looking outside and that was the same scenery, but it was very foggy. It was like a dream type scenery because I was the only one in the world. It was my own journey, seemed like. And I look outside and I see a lady right outside the van. She was pacing back and forth. She looked like she had, she was old. She was mid sixties and she was dressed in black and her clothes were like from the 1800s, something like that. She had a, a burn scar on her right cheek, head scarf, and she's just walking back and forth, back and forth. And I remember being upside down and I'm just, I know I couldn't speak because there's no sound. There's absolutely nothing. It was just my vision and I just existed. And I remember that I was just waving because I wanted to be able to get up. And she was pacing back and forth. And every time I asked for help, I was waiting for help. 
She just nodded no. She didn't speak. She just said that. She just nodded no. And at the time, I remember old me would have probably got upset and frustrated and not understand why I'm not getting any help. And I remember that I didn't judge her. At that time, I was thinking, you know, maybe she's just too worried that she's going to do more harm than good. Maybe she's worried that the car is going to set on fire and something's going to happen. Maybe she's just scared. So I didn't, I didn't judge her. And I told myself, well, I, I still want to enjoy this, this experience, this, this, this dream state. So I decided to close my eyes and get up and try again to get out and explore. And the second I closed my eyes, they opened right up and everything came back to life. Just like a movie that you would pause and then play right back. Everything, the sounds, the smells. I remember that there was a lot of gasoline smell in the car and the car was still turned on and I had to um, turn it off. And I felt the pressure on my knee because everything was, I was crushed completely. And I started panicking. I started like not understanding what's going on. And then I see, I think, hundreds of people outside the car, all the way up to the road. It was like three fire trucks, two ambulances. It was crazy. And I, I didn't understand why, because I felt great. I didn't have any, in I mean, I felt great. I remember the story. I remember the story prior to that. I remember the old lady. I remember everything. I just wanted to get out. So I remember this paramedic just ran into my van and just did like a football tackle right into the window and screamed at me from the top of his lungs, said, do not move. Do not move. And I remember saying back, I'm okay. I'm okay. I promise I'm okay. And then it was like, no, you're in bad shape. You, you think you're okay, but this is bad. It looks bad. We don't know what's going on and just don't move. And then he gave me IV through the window. And I remember telling him, why are you giving me IV through the window? Just uh, get me out of here, sir. You know, I'm, I'm okay. And he said, we can't get you out. We're going to have to call the firefighters. They're on their way uh, with the jaws of life. And if some of you don't know what the jaws of life are, is some hydraulic uh, machinery that's supposed to tear apart the vehicle and then you can extract the, the passengers. And I remember that I was just trying to say that I'm okay. Nobody would listen. So I decided to just close my eyes and think about the experience and try to connect because I was almost meditating without knowing what meditating was. And that was so wonderful because here I am closing my eyes, kind of meditating, and I hear the firefighters using their hammers and saws and they're cutting the car and everybody's screaming and I'm the most relaxed. Everybody's in chaos around me and I have the most peace. And I remember that the second they got me out of the car, they cut my uniform immediately with scissors and one of them gave me a morphine shot without even asking my permission for my stomach. So I felt everything's burning. And I'm like, what are you doing? And I kept trying to tell him that I'm okay, that I can even stand. I, I mean, I, I was fine. And nobody would listen. And they put me in the stretcher and they strapped me. And they're like, you just, you don't know. You probably have many, many fractures and you've been bleeding and brain damage. And they, and they said everything because of how the car looked. Because the fact that I hit the concrete wall in 80 miles per hour, that would kill 95% of people. 
And then I rolled over five times. So if that didn't do it, the five times rollover would do it. And and the car just formed, I told you, this sheet metal forks. They were crossing right at the driver's side, my side. And I drove alone. And there's videos and pictures uh, on my Facebook page about that. So I was supposed to be at least, I, I don't even know what. And I remember they were rushing me. So I decided to just cooperate so they don't just think I'm crazy and, and I don't know, give me medication. So I'm like, okay, well, I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go. I'll do it. I'll do what you want me to do. So they took me and we are, and this is my first time ever in an ambulance like that. There was like intensive care one. And they just go crazy fast and the sirens stuck in the movies. And and I'm laying there and I'm like, I don't even feel good. I was like, what's going on? And then I remember there was a sheriff lady, a deputy that, that was sitting there with us in, in the ambulance. And I asked, I was like, wanted to ask her a question. I said, may I ask you a question, please? And she said, well, it's better that you don't right now because you're in bad shape and you need to get tested. And after that, I'll, I'll take my uh, report anyways. And I remember that I insisted. I really insisted because something didn't add up to me at all. And I said, ma'am, I insist. Can I please ask you a question? And she said, well, go ahead. And I remember saying, isn't it illegal for a citizen not to help and not a citizen in distress? And she was like, what are you talking about? And I go, well, you know, there's a lady there. I mean, I was stuck. And before you guys got here, I was trying to get out. And I was waving. And, and she just, she's just like, shake your head no and wouldn't help me. And I remember that the sheriff lady said, there was a no lady there. We were the first in the scene. The first ones in the scene. You're in the middle of a field with nobody around you. And people from the prison called the police and neighbors and people were just gathering everywhere. And then I remember telling myself, okay, this is, uh, this is getting interesting. I better just not share it with anybody until I figured this out. And that was miracle number one. So I get to the hospital. And for those of you who don't know, like in a hospital, you can go to the ER or sometimes there's the trauma room. So the trauma room is for when there are severe, you know, the accidents or airlifting, like you need to save somebody's life immediately. So you go to the, the trauma room and then you are treated like quote unquote VIP because you don't go to imaging. They bring all the imaging to you. You just lay where you're at and everything comes to you, all testing. And I remember I felt like I just took a shower. I mean, I was, I know ironically speaking, because it's supposed to kill me Oh, 99.999% of the people. And that's what I was told after talking to, to investigators and road investigators and people that are into that because I really just wanted to know what happened. And I go there and they just scan me from head to toe everywhere. And I remember just staying there and letting them do their thing. And I, I go to the bed waiting for the doctor. And I remember I had some friends coming to visit me because they heard from another friend that I'm there. And doctor came to me and he said, listen, I've been here many, many, many years. I've never seen anything like that before. And I said, well, what are you talking about, doctor? What'd you find? And he goes, well, you didn't even break a nail. You don't even have a bruise. You don't even have any type of inflammation. Nothing. Nothing at all. Like you weren't even involved in any sort of impact. And he was really asking if that was me. And I remember showing him a scratch that I had here in my hand. And that scratch was not because of the accident itself. 
is because when the firefighters used the jaws of life and they were pulling me out of the car, all the glasses were broken, of course, shattered, and my hand, they pulled me fast, so my hand hit one of the broken windows and I got a small, small little scratch. But I'm telling you, a day after, I was at work. And I remember even going to the place where the uh, the junkyard where they took my car because I wanted to get battery because I had to get another car. So I needed a brand new battery that I just bought for the car that was involved in a car accident. And I'm going there and I remember the uh, owner come to us and he's sending us his condolences and said, well, I'm sorry about your friend when I was here. And I'm like, what are you talking about? It's me. I want my battery. And I remember he almost fainted. He was like, there's no way you came out of this. I was like, yeah with nothing. And at the time, it was very confusing and even entertaining. But shortly after, a month after, I started encountering the visions. And, and note, I was so skeptical in the beginning. I was so into materialism. I would make fun of anything spiritual back at the end of the day. I would just like be so against it. And that was because of my childhood, because I was really worried about that. I didn't even want to mess with it. So I rebelled it so much. And I was so skeptic, but I kept encountering these visions, these flavoring messages. And everything was just like I told you in the beginning. It's like you find out you're conceived when you have the moment of accident, your near-death experience, you're crossing to the other side, which in my case, I believe it was some, you know, you have an elevator and you have the, the floor between the floors, which is nothing. So I think that I was there and and not fully crossed over. That's why I didn't leave the car, spiritually speaking, but I was feeling the soul experience 100%. And I just remember that I was just going through, like life was throwing me like a ragdoll from side to side, place to place, everything in my life, from relationships to jobs to people I meet. And I was all with so many challenges that's supposed to almost break a person. Only later we realize that these, what people call challenges, I call blessings. These are the real blessings when we get to trials, when we actually get to face the trial that we're here for, part of our soul journey, and overcome it, and at least surrender to it, understand it. So there was this years and months of just encountering this psychic abilities and getting messages with numbers. And it was just, it, it didn't scare me, but it was like, I, I kept making the connection to the accident and I started accepting it, but it was really, really, really tough because when you're truly spiritually awakening after something like that, it equals to, you get to the, the stage of the birth, the delivery itself, the contractions, the, the, the pain, the screaming, you know, you're, you're like hatching from an egg. You just And, and every awakening, if you were even in nature, animals, people, when we hatch, when we just being born, it's it's a slow awakening. It's it's something very, very intense. And um, that's what happened. And since then, there was seven years that in the end of the seventh year, I was able to unite with my twin flame after having even false twin flames because I didn't even know what to say in twin flame, twin flame for the sake of it because I felt it was coming until I met my twin flame, which was the missing puzzle in my life to complete the spiritual awakening. It's not necessarily getting rid of your ego, but it's learning to live with it and balancing it so you always have your soul over the ego and not the other way around. And because of that, 
the consciousness, the knowledge is still, still being inherited to me or given to me daily. And through the fact that I help people every day and I, I learn to live a life for the spirit and life of a soul and like a soul. And there was something that uh, I'm only thankful, you know, back then I thought that my near-death experience was something that it was just like a, a bad thing or a, a warning. Uh, people used to tell me like, oh, it's a warning, it's this, it's that, it's, it's punishment. But no, I mean, that's that's what needed to happen. I was supposed to, and, and a lot of people ask me, you know, do you have to have an NDE to wake up? Absolutely not. You can wake up just in a blink of an eye from somebody smiling at you, from you having a child, falling in love, connecting, tapping into your soul. So yeah, and that's my story. And since then, I've been, for the past two years, just daily helping people from all over the world and using the near-death experiences. This is just, you know, it's a story. It's fascinating. People relate to that. But to me, my story really starts seven years after. That's the rebirth of my soul. And a lot of people ask me why I didn't have the classical near-death experience, which, you know, you see the tunnel and the light and you see your body floating around. is because, you know, uh, some call it walking soul. You know, every new age terms have different terms for many things, but it's the same phenomenon. I was able to not exchange my soul, but connect to my higher self and just download that version of me, the one that's supposed to live its purpose here. And usually when that happens, you skip dying and re and incarnating here and reincarnating here as a baby and doing the whole thing all over again. So it's just a, it's it's a it's a walking experience. You connect to a higher version of yourself and you soul swap. Soul swap is not with a different random stranger soul. It's either with a spirit god angel or with your higher self, with who you are in other realms, because I believe and know that at the same time that we're living in this consciousness, in this life, we do obey the rules of time. We have a past, present, future. But as a soul, we don't have time. The soul is now bounded to the limitations of time or space or capacity. So we are everywhere. So past life is not really past life. It's the same life somewhere else and same for your higher self. When you say, I want to connect to my higher self, it's not there's something above you in the ceiling. It's you in a higher realm of consciousness when you don't have any questions, you only have answers. So this is what happened to me. Since then, I help people who really need help from all over the world, from people who bury their children, which is the most difficult things, the, the hardest spiritual, mental pain a human can experience to people who just need direction in life. And most of these people are meant to meet me as part of their soul journey and mine. So I don't just meet anyone. It's just a certain amount of souls that and that's why i'm called the soul guide i don't really do much for them but just being a traffic spiritual a road sign a traffic sign they meet me and they're kind of like okay well you're in the right path take a right take the left it's up to you but take a step so that sums it up that's what i do since uh, my story and that's pretty much my story